Well, we began our series through the book of Leviticus last week, uh, addressing two challenges. I do repeat somewhat today a number of matters. First of all, there's some that weren't here last week. We start a new series and uh, also just to remind ourselves, there is a lot of repetition in the passage that we're in. And so we will repeat somewhat, but just to help continue to think through how we work through Leviticus, we addressed two challenges last week. First was uh, when Beth heard of my intentions to preach through the book of Leviticus, she was going to move to Florida. You remember that? And had to talk her off of that. But it was interesting how many people came up after the service uh, last week and said, I was kind of thinking the same thing. So we're making progress here. But um, her response and the response of many cast light on one of the great hurdles as we as new covenant believers face when we come to a book like Leviticus. Why spend our time reading about animal sacrifice, the rituals that are involved there? Why read about what you do with the entrails and the skin and the bones and why you deal with these carcasses? And then we move to skin diseases and mold in houses and rituals that seem so odd and strange to us. And indeed, we know theologically Jesus fulfilled the law. What can a long journey through the book of Leviticus yield that a simple reading of Hebrews does not? Jose asked us last week, how can you be sure that Jesus is God's Messiah? How do you really know? Well, I feel it in my heart. Let me tell you, that's not a good answer. I I hope you can answer that. But that's not a good answer. It's certainly not a sufficient answer. How do you know that Jesus is God's Messiah? How do you know that He fulfilled the law which we believe pointed forward to Him? How can we sing today, His robes for mine? How do you know? Remember the Eagle Mountain illustration. There's only one way up to the highest peak in Minnesota. The Army Corps of Engineers have put a monument up there, and I know you could go up other ways, but there's only one real path up there. And as you go back from time to time, you see the same signs that point the way there. And it's not very exciting down at the bottom. It's just marshy, some beautiful pieces, but it's all flat. It's not much of a view. But you say, here it is. Here's the signpost. Here's the way to the summit. That's what Leviticus is. And as we go back, we familiarize ourselves with all that God has been teaching His people through the centuries to discern and to see how we get to the summit. How do you know that Jesus is Messiah? You go step by step the way that God has brought His people through the centuries. And here in Leviticus, we look to the side through this marshy track where we can't see much of anything but the trees overhead and the wet at our feet, but we say, this is it. This is it. How does God prove to us that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin? How do we know that? Remember that Leviticus brings us to that like a drama. 
It's a drama, as we have in the Lord's Supper. No one is coming to feast on the Lord's Supper to get full in their stomach. But there's a drama there. There's something that we recognize is going on, pointing to something more than what we see in front of us. As I said last week, you don't watch a movie set in an old day and go, this has nothing to do with me. This isn't helping me in my business. This isn't helping my family. I don't understand this movie. It's got nothing to do with me. You never say that. You just watch it where it is. And you realize it's teaching much more than sometimes we even recognize. But it's a drama that has a message behind it. That's where we are as we come to the book of Leviticus. Now last week we also addressed the second challenge, and that's the problem of failing to grasp the integral relationship of Leviticus to the rest of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses that start the Bible, are all to be read as one. Remember last week, we were helped, perhaps, by this graphic. As we look at how the Pentateuch is structured, Genesis beginning the journey, and God's created powers, and we see the fall into sin, but there's a journey out of Genesis toward Egypt. Then in Exodus, there's the move out of Egypt through redemption to Mount Sinai. And then we come to Mount Sinai and Leviticus takes place all there. No movement, no journey. This is the pinnacle of the whole account. Numbers, again, there's movement. There's movement away from Mount Sinai to the promised land and Deuteronomy back at the promised land. But as it is structured in this way, we realize that Leviticus is in some sense the height of it all. It is how we enter into the presence of this holy God. So in Genesis, paradise is lost. But why is paradise paradise? Because God is there. But through human sin, Adam and Eve are banished from God's presence. And then we come to Babel and this tower that is built to reach into the skies, not necessarily to grab God and pull Him down, but to make a name for man. Look how great we are using the brick. Look what we've accomplished. A reaching up into the heavens for the glory of man. God, of course, judging and then calling Abram. Choosing a family that will eventually serve as a nation of priests to show the nations how they can enter into the presence of God. At Babel, there was no real interest in that. It was to deify man. God says, I will bring you into my presence. I will dwell with you again. But you're going to do it my way. You must come to me, the holy God, as I direct. And in the book of Exodus, he begins to fill that out, restoring his dwelling among the people. And notice the, the emphasis on this, Exodus 29. Notice the emphasis of God dwelling with his people. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. After redeeming Israel from slavery, God leads Israel then to Mount Sinai. And remember there in Exodus, He descends upon the mountain. There is lightning, there's fire, there is smoke. The presence of God shakes the mountain. The people fear. God is there. 
And that's not where we want to be, they say, in fear. But God in His holy glory, residing on this mountain, in His mercy, forgives Israel and works with Israel. After Exodus 32 and that horrible scene of the golden calf and the rebellion against God and going their own way, bringing God's presence among them on their terms, they think. God in His mercy and grace forgives and comes down from Mount Sinai into the presence of this people. It's not because they deserve it. But in His mercy, He comes to them to meet them and comes to dwell among them. Exodus 40. Make your way there if you're not there now. Exodus 40 and verse 34. Exodus 40. And verse 34, then the cloud, what cloud? This cloud that's led them through the desert, this cloud that has resided on Mount Sinai, this cloud covers the tent of meeting. This tabernacle that God has instructed Moses to build, and the people have brought it together and put it together. The glory of the Lord fills this tabernacle. Verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. That is the glory of the Lord shrouded by this cloud. It glows from within in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What a wonderful, wonderful ending and truth. God has come off the mountain into the presence of his people, his glory dwelling there. But it's not a wonderful ending. There's something desperately wrong. God now dwells with His people, but how will the tent of meeting become the tent of meeting? Moses, who resides for 40 days in the cloud on the mountain, cannot enter. That's odd. The mediator is not able to enter into the tabernacle God has established as a place where Israel can meet with Him. So how can the sinful and unclean people of God approach the glorious and holy God of creation in His house? This is the burning question, no pun intended. This is the burning question. If you miss the way the Pentateuch works as a unit, Leviticus seems to start out of nowhere and broker in irrelevance. What on earth is going on here? But if we understand that it connects directly to the end of Exodus, this question remains. And as that question is there hanging in the air as Exodus comes to a close, Leviticus 1.1 then bursts off the page. The Lord called Moses. He spoke to him on the mount. Now he's in the tabernacle speaking to Moses. How? Can a sinful people enter into the presence of God? His tent is here. How do we approach Him? 
Leviticus 1.1, the Lord calls Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd and from the flock. How can a sinner enter into the holy presence of God to commune with him? We're on the bottom of the mountain. We're working our way up, but we're looking at the signpost, and God is saying, get this. Walk this way. If we put it in one word, it's this, sacrifice. Sacrifice. And last week we saw that God reveals guidelines for three types of sacrificial offerings here in the first chapters of Leviticus. The burnt offerings come there at verse 3 of chapter 1. He gives different types of sacrifices that can be offered as a burnt offering. The most basic of sacrifices, it pictures total consecration of the worshiper to God in that, in part, the animal is entirely consumed by the fire. Nothing is eaten. Nothing is taken away. It is entirely consumed and becomes smoke. Chapter 2, if you just note there, the grain offerings expressing thanks to God for His goodness and provision. A portion of this offering eaten by the priests. Chapter 3, the peace offerings. These were voluntary. The emphasis falls on fellowship with God and even fellowship with God's people. Some was consumed, some was eaten by the fire, some was eaten by the priests, and some was eaten by the family or friends that have gathered here in the presence of God to commune and to celebrate together as God's people. Then we come to chapter 4 and look now at the two different types of offerings. We have the sin offerings introduced here in chapter 4 and 5. Two more types of sacrificial offerings are provided here for God's people, but these two sacrifices are distinct from the first three, but they're also very similar to one another. We distinguish the two only because there's different sacrifices, different animals are offered, and there's different ritual with the blood. But as these three types of sacrifices in the first three chapters address sinners, in a sense, as sinners by nature, we must come to God through sacrifice. We come as sinners, even if it's just fellowshipping with Him and with others, we must approach with sacrifice. But here in chapters 4 and 5, these are offerings that look at sinners committing actual sin. We come as sinners by nature, and undoubtedly there are acts of sin that are part of that as we deal with these first three sacrifices. But here we deal now with specific acts of sin and acts of omission that violate the Word of God. So the first, referred to as sin offerings here in our ESV, you might have a different translation than sin offering, but the idea here is one that brings us to committed sin. So the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 4, verse 1. And he says this, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish. We have to stop here, and we're going to have to stop for just a few moments. Have you ever been confused by this? If anyone sins 
unintentionally. I, I sin a lot. I confess my sins all day long. Not too often do I sin and go, you know, I didn't mean to do that. Right? I mean, we, we don't, if, if you think of unintentionally a certain way and our, our English minds hit us and say, well, what's the opposite of unintentional? It's intentional. Doesn't most of our sin fall under the category of intentional? It does, certainly. And this is where we run into one of those problems with the Hebrew word. I don't know if it's ever hit you before. If you've read through Leviticus before, you've run into this word from time to time. But actually, the Hebrew word is not the opposite of intentional. It's more the, it's saying something more like this. That was a mistake I wish I had never made. Unintentional sin. That was a mistake. That was an error. That was a violation of God's word that I wish I had not done. That's the idea. I sinned. I broke God's law. I meant to. It was intentional in that sense. But now that the deed is done, I wish I had not done it. I confess that I erred and I repent. That's the idea. So, uh, with perhaps a little help here with the slide, in the Hebrew Bible, if anyone sins unintentionally, means something like if anyone has a repentant attitude about a sinful mistake he or she has committed against God. It's unintentional in that sense. I wish I hadn't done it. So what the emphasis is, is not on what your brain was thinking and whether you meant to do it or not, but rather what you think about it now that the deed is done. So the opposite of unintentional sin is not intentional sin necessarily. And again, I suppose some sin can be unintentional. But it's not necessarily that, but sin with a high hand. That's the opposite of this Hebrew word. Sin with a high hand, a defiant, unrepentant sinner. So what we have, when we have this word unintentional in there, I know it's challenging because it's a translation problem. But when we see that word, unintentional sin, what we're talking about is sin that one wishes he or she had not committed. That is, there's a present presence of a repentant heart. Now what about sin with a high hand? Sin with a high hand is in a sense we shake our fist in God's face and say, I will do what I'm going to do. I don't care what you think. It is intentional. I'm not sorry that I've done it or am doing it. I will not bend. That's sin with a high hand. What is the sacrifice for sin with a high hand? Let that question sit in your mind. We'll come back to it. But all that is dealt with here in Leviticus 4 and 5 is sin where we come with a repentant heart and say, in a sense, I wish I had not done that. So back at Leviticus 1.1, we'll get out of it, but back to it for just a moment to highlight a few things that we've seen there that carry through these sacrifices. 
Put your eye, if you will, on one three. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember the significance here. How do sinners enter into the presence of God? Sacrifice. Notice the word, he shall bring. He shall bring doesn't mean that he has it in his hands, but the idea of the Hebrew word is that he will approach God in this way. And even literally, he will come before the face of Jehovah. To bring that, to approach God, he brings his offering before the face of Yahweh. In chapters 1 through 3, the answer to the question, then how will sinners approach God, is sacrificed. Going then to chapter 4 again, where we see the law of sin offerings. If anyone sins, unintentionally, that is, wishing that he had not done that. It might be something he doesn't know about, but it's often intentional. But having this repentant heart, even if, verse 3, it's the anointed priest, probably the high priest, then the high priest shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. The priest, those who mediate between the holy God and his sinful people, are themselves sinners. The priest's sin brings guilt on the people, you notice here. Verse 4, He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. He will lay his hand on its head. This again is an identification with the animal. It means that he puts his weight upon the body of this victim, leaning on it as the throat is slit, feeling the life drain away. He is saying, this one is dying for me. And the reason is that the drama of the ritual teaches us that sinners... As sinners, we must recognize that the wages of sin is death. That only through death can I enter God's presence for fellowship. God graciously, albeit only on His terms, however, provides a substitute life to be sacrificed in my place. This I'm learning in the drama. I'm seeing it right there in front of me as I lean on this sacrifice and its life ebbs away. I identify with this sacrifice as I approach God. This I am taught. Verse 5, chapter 4. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So here we go, just a little model, but just to think of the setup there. Entering in with the blood of sacrifice, he goes into that tent. And if we would see the approach from this angle, from this graphic, he's going to go into the altar of incense and there sprinkle the blood inside the tent. Now, this is a priest in sin, and so only a priest can go in here. But he goes into this place before this. That isn't a photograph that Moses sent us, but it looks something like that. And you notice the horns 
on this altar of incense. This is where the incense is burned before the holiest place where God's ark and presence are. And what is it doing? It's simulating, in a sense, the glory cloud, the cloud on the mountain, now the mountain in the tabernacle, the presence of God here. He comes to this approach in the presence of the glory of God, and He brings the blood here. Only through blood. Does he so approach? Verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So at that altar, at this altar, perhaps on the ground it would seem, blood is applied for the priest. We're not provided here with reasons for this ritual. But it was clear that blood must be shed in order for the Israelites to gain the purification necessary to enter into God's holy presence. Verse 8, And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Refer back there if you wish. He's saying, And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh and its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood on the ash heap. It shall be burned up without doing too much to fill in the blanks. Picture it. Blood running down the robes, the bloody hands, the blood at the altar, the blood in the tabernacle, the blood on the horns of the altar because a priest sinned. How do you come into the presence of a holy God? Through sacrifice. Death. For the priests. For the whole congregation. Verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, that is, they come repentantly, but there is sin that where they have broken probably a ritual of God's law and it would have been pretty easy to do that. They come, they come to realize their sin. They do any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and they realize their guilt. Verse 14, when the sin which they have committed becomes known and the assembly shall then offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation, we see the identification again, they shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his fingers in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar, a burnt offering that is at the entrance of of the tent of meeting and all its fat shall take from it and all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar thus shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering so shall he do with this and the priest shall make atonement for them hear these beautiful words these signposts and they shall be forgiven 
And he'll carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. They shall be forgiven. When sacrifices are offered according to God's law and shedding of blood is offered in his presence with repentant heart, blood purifies the sinner. The drama of the ritual stresses over and over again that it is only through the death of a substitute, only through the shedding of blood, that a sinner can approach God and commune with Him in adoration. And when we do, when Israel so approaches, Moses commends, God declares, the sinner is forgiven. For the whole congregation, for the elders of the congregation, verse 22. These are not priests now, but leaders, and they too, verse 22, will sin. So we have a different subject here. In chapters 1 through 3, the emphasis was much more on the different sacrifices, but here we have on the different people, and the sacrifice is appropriate. When a leader sins, verse 22, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt, that is, he comes to know he has broken the law of God, he comes to accept it and to come with repentant heart, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he maybe has broken the law of God and is not aware of it, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. Verse 24, here it is again. He shall lay his hand on the head of the goat. Again, to put his hand on its head and to lean with strength on it, the Hebrew word says, he'll kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar, a burnt offering. That's the altar outside where the fire is blazing. And he'll pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, a burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sins. Here it is again. And he shall be forgiven. And he shall be forgiven. A model of the tent of meeting. I don't know that it's a particularly good one, but this is a real one. But you see there the horns of the brazen altar. The blood placed there on those horns symbolically. What does all of that mean? We could think about it. We could conjecture. I'm sure that there's meaning behind it all. We're just not, that's not conveyed to us. But he would put the blood there for the community elders who have sinned. And then verse 27, for everyone else. If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. A female offering is unusual among the approved offerings. The significance of this rule is not stated, but it would have served to distinguish a sinner's offering from that of a community offering as priests offered sacrifices on the altar. I don't know what the reason is, but again, the consistency. Verse 29, here's the pointer again. Here's the sign again. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. 
And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him. Here it is. And he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. As we move to chapter 5, the text draws out illustrations of some ways in which sinners might fail the Lord, necessitating purification sacrifices. Some of this, it's been assumed, they're learning as they break the rituals that God has established. But here, if anyone sins, 5.1, in that he hears a public adjuration to testify and though he is witness whether he has seen or come to know the matter yet does not speak he shall bear his iniquity the the elders put out a call this has taken place has anyone seen anything and he says nothing even though he's seen something or heard something this breaks the law of god Verse 2, or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it's hidden from him and he has become unclean, he realizes his guilt. Or if he touches human uncleanness or whatever sort of uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, I should stop at verse 3, uncleanness will pick up later. But you're not necessarily sinning to be unclean. You're just human. But these ritual uncleanness, the contacting of ritual uncleanness becomes a major thing as you approach a holy God. He teaches His people that. Or we can sin, verse 4, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation. That word could read, as his guilt penalty. For the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, it's expensive to give away a lamb, and many people would not have the ability. If he cannot do it, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves, or two pigeons, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. It's graphic. He's going to take the bird and twist its neck till it breaks, but he won't sever it completely, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood of sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. 
Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he even cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for a sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering, probably a close to a two-liter bottle of grain. We have a two-liter pot bottle. You know what that size is, about that full of grain. That's the offering. Anybody, it would be assumed, could provide that. He shall put no oil on it, shall put no frankincense on it. He's poor. It's a sin offering. There's probably other reasons. But he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it, its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar in the Lord's it is uh, on the Lord's food offering. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. That is, the priest shall eat it. God's instructions now shift to the guilt offering which is almost indistinguishable from the sin offering, or I couldn't think of the word before, the purification offering. Sometimes it's called that. The sin offering or a purification offering. Now we have the guilt offering, which is almost indistinguishable, but it offers a different sacrifice, and there's different ritual with the blood. And so we read verse 14 that the Lord speaks to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith, and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation, as his guilt offering, a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution. So here we're dealing with harm that's been done to God by breaking his law, but harm that's been done to someone else. So he makes restitution for what he's done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth of it and give it to the priest and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things which the Lord commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, when he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring it to the priest, a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent, for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, understand rightly, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter or of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he sinned and has realized his guilt, and he will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full." and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. You had enough? 
whew. You've never read the book of Leviticus? You're reading it. As we do read the book of Leviticus, this is tedious. 30 minutes of our life. Think of what it meant for Israel. Think of what it meant for God's people. Think of the God you know who said to his people, I want you to do this. Not it's a drama on a movie for two and a half hours and we watch it and go, wow, that was interesting and move on. This is a drama they lived in from the day that they were born to the day that they died. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. They had to do this. We might feel a bit irritated. We might feel a bit put off to even read about what they had to do. How can sinners enter the presence of God? This is what God is teaching all of us. How can people emerge from the profane and fallen world in which we live? How can we come, those who break God's law, those of us who, like these people, lie and deceive, who steal and gossip, who lust, who are covered with the filth of greed and jealousy and self-serving pride. How can we enter into the pristine, holy, and sinless presence of God? God speaks from His tabernacle. He speaks to Moses. He speaks to His people. And He says, as you ask that question, here's my answer. Take a lamb, lay it on the altar, put your hand on it, lean against it, identify with it, take a knife, slit its throat, and burn it into thin air. That's my answer. It's a drama, but it's a very pointed one. The false religions of our day answer that question very differently. How does a sinner enter into the presence of a holy God or the holy gods? Be good. God says, sacrifice. That's the way in. Now we know, and rightly so, that this drama is steering us along a specific path to a higher summit, to a much grander conclusion than animal sacrifice. But let's not miss the fact that God teaches His people in the book of Leviticus to follow this certain road of truth. And He kept His people on that road for a long, long time. The approach to the summit, to the pinnacle of Jesus crucified and risen, it took a long, long trek to get there. He's making sure we know we're on the right path. By means of this drama, God teaches us that sin separates us from God and that the way into His presence is not the way of self-righteous qualification. You know that, I assume, the majority of you here because you enter into a church like this one. 
which preaches because the Scriptures teach it that we do not qualify ourselves before God by our good deeds. Good deeds are important. They're vital to our walk with the Lord, but they are not how we enter His presence. We know this. God steers Israel also down a very narrow path by causing them to witness over and over again that the wages of sin is death. And He steers them by this drama to get the point that God alone can provide a way for sins to be forgiven. And gloriously, He's done that. What a merciful God. This drama teaches that only death delivers us from death. The death of a substitute that God approves to deliver us from the death of separation from Him. We're being steered down this one road with ritual after ritual after ritual. Go this way. Sacrifice. Substitution. Death. How could it be missed? I found myself once upon a time stuck in Mozambique, which was basically the equivalent of being stuck in a whole other world, an era. And just standing on the street, waiting to be picked up, rural setting, I saw the core of my eye two guys that were moving rather quickly, and I looked more closely, and they had a goat between them, and they were kind of moving quickly with this goat toward the backyard of a, of a business, of a restaurant. And I thought, I don't think it's going to end well for this goat. <laughs> I just get the feeling. I don't know what's going on, but it's not looking good. And within a matter of minutes, that goat was strung up by its back legs, hanging upside down on a tree. And any question I had was pretty well confirmed. It's not ending well for this goat. And indeed, in a matter of moments, its throat was slit and the blood was flowing. Well, that really had an impact on a guy that gets his meat out of a package at the grocery store. You know, it was just something you don't forget. Killing an animal is something God gives us the right to do as appropriate stewards. But I don't know that anybody in Israel was jumping up and down to be involved in all of this. And taking the life of an animal has its certain pain for anyone that's rightly thinking. It's appropriate. God gives us the guidelines and the direction. It was right for him to give this to Israel, and indeed it fed many people on some level. But it has an impact. And let's say it again because we repeat again and because the sacrifices repeat again. But let's remember it. Your hand leans heavily against this animal's flesh. Your hand. You feel the warm, woolly body quivering as its throat is slit and its lifeblood is drained away. You hear the blood spilling into the priest's bowls. You hear them slosh it up against the altar. You hear the flesh shredded and pulled apart, the wet, slithery, slapping sounds of the entrails harvested from the carcass by the priests. 
You see them splashing that blood, dabbing it on the horns of the altar, hauling parts outside the camp where a fire burns out there as well. At God's altar, you hear the crackle of the wood, the sizzling of the meat, your nostrils filling with the aroma, the smoke blinding your eyes and ascending to the heavens. It's an assault on the senses. You salivate and you contemplate. That one for me. This one providing atonement before God, a sinner forgiven this way. God's redemptive instructions are really earthy. And His redemptive plan is very, very slow and plodding. Sacrifice after sacrifice. Now think of it. Morning after morning. Evening after evening. Day after day. Month after month. Year after year. Keep going. Generation after generation. And keep going. Century after century. This ritual... This getting it, death, blood, substitution, sacrifice. Blood flows and smoke rises to God and God's people knew as well as they knew anything else that you come into God's presence only through sacrifice, only on His terms. He steered His people to know that only by the shedding of blood, the perfect substitute is their remission of sins and access to His holy presence. You say, well, there are a lot of other ancient people that are doing the same thing. They're offering a lot of sacrifices too. Yes, they were offering those sacrifices to earn the favor of the God who will look at their offering and decide whether or not to receive them. The difference is that God is the one who prescribes the sacrifice. You come on His terms. And he promises forgiveness for a repentant heart. That's the difference. The pagan offers the offering and hopes it's good enough. Hopes that the gods will respond and be good to me as I've been good to you. But the believer in God comes on his terms, at his counsel, his way to offer his sacrifice. And this is one of the ways we know who Jesus is. Because he saves his people by means of his shed blood. And that's distinct. No religious teacher saves this way except Jesus. None. No other religious teacher can it be said, as John the Apostle says of Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who sheds his blood in sacrifice and thus cleanses us from our sin. Steering us this way, we come to this unique Savior whose blood cleanses us from sin. No other religious teacher can do it because once dead, they're dead. But Christ laying down His life lives. And so God points us to Him. Now I ask you to keep the idea of sin with a high hand in mind. Have you done that? This is the offering for 
unintentional sins, sins where we come repentantly knowing that we've made a mistake, I look at my sin and I say, I wish I had not done that. If you sin and go, I'm really glad I did that, and I'm really glad that God forgives, I'm not sure that you're forgiven. In fact, I would encourage you to realize you're not. But if you come with your sin and say, I know what I did was wrong, and I would like to not have done it, there's sacrifice for that sin. But what is the sacrifice for the high-handed sin that raises a fist in God's face and says, I will not yield, I will not bend, I will not repent? What is the sacrifice for such a sinner? The truth is, is this is something that God reveals by silence. Because there isn't one. There is no sacrifice in the Old Covenant for sins against God with a high hand. For the unrepentant soul, there is no more sacrifice for sin and there is no forgiveness from God. Let me assure you that God is capable of forgiving anything. He has that power. He can forgive sin. Anything. We think of King David who abused his power, who committed adultery, who murdered and deceived. But as he sought forgiveness from God, there was a sacrifice for that. And David even begins to look beyond the sacrificial system as he seems to sense in the wickedness of what he has done that something unique is needed here. It's not just the blood of the animal. He says in Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Open my lips from a heart that's been purified and I will offer a sacrifice of praise to you. He continues, for you do not delight in sacrifice. I think we could say, you don't delight in sacrifice for sacrifice's sake, or sacrifice alone, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. Listen to what he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise every one of us comes to this place today with the darkness and the wickedness of sin in our history if you don't see that wickedness in yourself it is simply because you're blind it's there we come with horrific sin before the presence of God What he asks of us is the right sacrifice and a contrite heart. You come with a repentant heart, trusting in Jesus as the sacrifice that paid the penalty of your sin. And God will forgive. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it in any way, but because he's earned it. And he loves to give forgiveness. Atonement has been made. Forgiveness is available. And as Hebrews 10 warns us, 
then for the unrepentant, for those who reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You say, I love my sin. And maybe you say, I don't raise a fist in God's face, but I'm not going to change. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn from my sin. Let me tell you, Jesus is the sacrifice for your sin, and there is no other. If you don't come now and turn from your sin and repent There's no answer for sin. God has taught his people this for century after century. This is the only way. And Christ is that sacrifice. Do not sin with a high hand. Do not sin with an unrepentant heart. Come before him now, whether you're a believer or whether you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Come today to this place and say, My sin is an act of rebellion against God. It is wickedness. It is impurity at the deepest level. But I put my trust in Jesus Christ who died as the Lamb of God. His blood spilt for mine. And I trust in that work that He has done. And in that, there is atonement and forgiveness for me. Let's pray. To this end we pray, Lord. To this end we seek your face. Forgive us our iniquities. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we in Christ Jesus find salvation and purification and ultimately glorification. We lay this request at your feet with confidence because of what Christ has done and what you have taught us through the ages. For anyone who has not come to a place of utter repentance, of turning from sin and trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Indeed it is. May there be a response. For those of us who rejoice in this salvation, we pause here to thank you that the only sacrifice offered in this room today were words of praise, were songs of thanksgiving, were hearts purified and lifted up to the glory of Your name. Because Jesus Christ, our sacrifice, has died to pay all of the penalty. And in Him we rest thanking you by your spirit for the glory of your name and through our intercessor, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.